We are in Malachi. If you have your Bibles, the last book of the Hebrew Scriptures, Malachi. If you were speaking Hebrew, you'd say Malachi. Kind of that hard H, which I like doing, especially when I have a head cold. Malachi. Uh, if you're Italian, Malachi. So whatever works for you. The book of Malachi, Malachi chapter 3. One verse will serve as our baseline for this morning. Now, you may notice not quite as many verses today as the previous couple of weeks. <laughs> Don't get too comfortable. <laughs> Malachi chapter 3, verse 6. You might want to underline, highlight, circle, and star this one. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. Again, for I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O sons of Jacob, Israel, are not consumed. Bible prophecy, as we have been talking about, is all about truth. It is about truth. It is not about goosebumps, chills, thrills, conspiracies, intrigue, emotional manipulation. It is about truth. It is the word more sure, the prophetic word more sure, 2 Peter 1.19, to which you would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. The last couple or three weeks we have been talking about truth, the things that matter, things about which God has clearly spoken in his word. Now, I begin with that, and I remind you of that again, because in the last year, a huge amount of so-called prophecies have been floated by people who declared that Donald Trump would remain president of the United States for the next four years. Where are they now? These so-called prophets, regardless of what you think or how you feel about what's taken place in our country, there were those who stood up and said, God has said, thus saith the Lord, Donald Trump will remain the president of these United States. There is a name for those who represent the Lord falsely. Jesus calls them false prophets. We might just call them charlatans. And I say this to you because I know there are some among us who have certain uh, prophecy teachers and speakers who have said things and you listen to them and you like them and you trust them. But if they said that this last year, they are not a prophet of God. And I've got scripture for that. Deuteronomy 18.21, you may say in your heart, how will we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not come about or come true, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. That prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. Now, I can tell you, I've spoken a few things over the years presumptuously. I've made assumptions and gone back and discovered I was incorrect and had to correct those things. It's one thing to be teaching a Bible study and, and say, this is what I think that means. In fact, I'll show you one thing this morning that in previous times I thought it meant something different than what it means. It's one thing to study the word and wrestle through it and seek to understand it together. It's another thing to say, thus says the Lord, and declare something as a prophetic word that does not come true. And I share this with you 
Because as I said last week, as Jesus said over and over, in the last days, false prophets would arise. There will be all kinds of false words out there. Some are words you want to hear. People saying things, oh yeah, that's, that, that's in my wheelhouse. I'm comfortable with that. I like to hear that. But we're here for the truth. And sometimes the truth is marvelously comforting. And in other times, the truth is unsettling. It's never discouraging, but it is always what it is that is true. It's always absolutely true. We can have a tendency to get excited about certain words. I've noticed this on our YouTube channel. We can get excited about words like prophecy, end times. Words like Leviticus don't seem to have the same boom. Oh, they're studying Leviticus. Tune in. You know, it's fascinating to me. People respond to, you know, a study in numbers somewhat like Bernie Sanders on Inauguration Day. Bundled up as if expecting a blizzard, you know? Have you seen the meme? I mean, if you haven't seen it, it's, it's absolutely hysterical. The picture of, of, of Bernie sitting there in a chair with that big honking coat on and his mittens that have to be circa 1939, and, and he's just kind of holding on to himself, and he's got his mask on, and he just does not look like a happy camper. And this picture of Bernie is showing up everywhere, everywhere. My daughter sent me a picture of Bernie in an Animal Crossing meme. Animal Crossing, if you don't know, is a Nintendo game. And <laughs> it's just, in fact, I think he even made it into the, the Facebook announcement of this morning's prophecy update. So you might want to check that out this afternoon. There's a little picture of Bernie down there in the corner. Anyway, I didn't do that. That was all Eva. Blame her. She thought that'd be funny. She's already been rebuked. Listen, here's the thing. And I bring that up for a reason. Prophecy, end times, yes, and I love it, and I'm fascinated by it. Leviticus, well, if I have time, maybe we'll get around to it. Brothers and sisters, I need to tell you this, and I don't do this often. That is given advertisement for recent teaching. But if you have not tuned in and listened to the last two Wednesday nights, Leviticus 21 and Leviticus 22, they are possibly two of the most significant teachings we have recently shared, prophecy updates included. I would hold these two up above the last two weeks of prophecy updates. Leviticus 21 and 22, I urge you to go back and listen if you haven't listened to them because they are about our immediate priestly calling as followers of Jesus Christ. Did you know that you're a priest? If you're a follower of Jesus, you could be a brand new follower of Jesus, first day following Jesus. You are now part of the royal priesthood. Two weeks ago on Wednesday, we talked about the disabled priest. Most of us sense at times our disability as followers of Jesus. We really aren't all that we thought we were or hoped we could be. We have disabilities and, and defections and, and deformities. The disabled priest. And we talked about how Jesus became disabled, that we might be enabled to follow him as his priestly people. 
And then last week we talked about, last Wednesday, handling the holy things. And you might want to go back and listen and consider what are the holy things of God today. See, the priesthood back then had to handle all kinds of things that were holy unto the Lord. What about us if we're a royal priesthood? What is holy? And how do we handle these things today? This is so vitally important. You want to talk Bible prophecy? Revelation 1, verse 6, Jesus Christ has made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. That is our profession. It's not lawyer, it's not doctor, it's not postal worker. Your profession, brothers and sisters, is a priest of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that priestly profession is both now and it is then. Don't miss your priestly calling. Not about stumbling and bumbling your way into the kingdom. You're a priest. Take that to heart. Well, I don't feel much like a priest. One of our teens was asked, they don't even know I know about this, but on Wednesday night, asked after the fact, someone asked them, uh, hey, what'd you think about that? And the response was, I, I, I don't know if it applies to me. I'm no priest. Oh, yes, you are. Oh, yes, you are. It's kind of like a med student the night before beginning residency who says, I don't feel much like a doctor. Well, that's why they call it a medical practice. Right? <laughs> They practice medicine. They don't get it right all the time. We are practicing our priesthood. We are practitioners of our high priestly calling in Jesus. And as far as the Lord is concerned, and let's face it, that's all that really matters, we are his royal priesthood. And my friends, we are about to take office. Are you ready? Are you ready to step into your role in the kingdom? My friends, if you're not ready, get ready. I say that because there's another group of people who missed their priestly calling, struggled with it, didn't handle it well, and ultimately relegated it to just some of their number. A kingdom of priests and a holy nation, that's what they were called to be. Exodus 19, verse 3, Moses went up to God. This was when the people first arrived, as we recently saw, at Mount Sinai, and in the very first ascension up Mount Sinai, Moses went to God and the Lord called to him from the mountain saying, thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the sons of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice, keep my covenant, then you will be my own possession, my peculiar, my unique treasure among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me, listen, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. Now I have a deep, deep love for Israel and the Jewish people. If you've been around me long, you know that. You've heard me talk about it. This is why I keep going back to Israel and we take tour groups back to Israel. By the way, before I'm done this morning, I'll let you know the dates of our next tour. But the reason, a big part of the reason is I love the Jewish people. I have learned to, I have come to love the Jewish people. And even that I'll explain more why as we go. But think about this. How was the offer of God that they become a kingdom of priests and a holy nation? How was that received? 
It wasn't. It was rescinded. It was left to one tribe of 12, the tribe of Levi. Originally, God's intention was the entire nation of Israel would be a priesthood in the world. But they relegated it to another, to, to Levi. I want to talk about this holy nation this morning. You know, there's always interpretation and there's application of the scriptures, and we're going to look at the interpretation of things regarding Israel, but don't miss the application to you and to me today. Again, it's his royal priesthood. But Israel, and the reason I chose Israel as our prophecy update part three, and we've talked about the run-up to the rapture part one, the rapture itself part two, you might think, well, the next thing is, right, the tribulation. Well, that's, yes, in the timeline. But I'm going to Israel because it is so significant prophetically. This is a prophetic truth, my friends, that matters as much as the rapture itself. And in light of several events of this past week, I think you'll see why. So we're going to take a couple of views this morning, and we're going to look at Israel through both lenses. The first lens is the geopolitical perspective. And we're just going to talk a little bit about, if, if you'll indulge me for a few minutes, talk a little bit about what's been happening over the last week. And then we're going to go from the geopolitical perspective right back into the Word of God and consider a godly perspective. So part one, if you're taking notes, this is a geopolitical perspective. How many of you watched the inauguration of Joe Biden? Hands up. Well, <laughs> I'm shocked. <laughs> Did you see the Time Magazine cover of day one in office? How many people saw that? Okay, you need to Google that. This is Time's representation of Joe Biden's first day in office, and it's horrible. It's just, why? Why would they do this? It shows a picture of Joe Biden standing there looking out the window of the Oval Office. The Oval Office is trashed. There's spray paint on the desk, a big T for Trump, no doubt, spray painted on one of the curtains, stacks of unfinished paper everywhere, trash, unfinished business, and outside the windows, D.C. is burning. And Time Magazine thought this was a wise thing to put out to a country that is so divided. Unbelievable. Implication, Donald Trump has left an absolute disastrous mess, and Joe Biden is going to clean it up. The peaceful transition of power took place on Wednesday. As you know, I'm just going to let you all know if you, if you missed it, from our 45th to our 46th president. Despite calling in more than 25,000 National Guard troops and housing them in luxurious underground uh, garages, not a single conservative protest took place, not one. Of course, that night, protests broke out in Portland, Sacramento, Seattle, BLM burned a flag in Denver, Antifa showed up. My friends, President Trump is out of office, and the left claimed he was the whole problem. But the violence and the unrest just continues. It just goes on. Last night in Bellingham, just read that this morning, that uh, the ICE offices apparently, or the office of the mayor in Bellingham was stormed last night by rioters wanting to do away with ICE. Listen, 
You can pin the blame. No, wait. You can't. You can't pin the blame of humanity on one man unless that man be Jesus Christ. You can't say Donald Trump is the reason for all the ills in this country. You can't say one person is responsible for all the unrest. You can't pin sin on an individual unless that individual is Jesus who was pinned to the cross and took all of our sin on himself. But here's the thing. They just don't get it. The two powers, I mean, that, that now govern America. You know, you know what the two governing powers are, don't you? Washington, D.C. and Silicon Valley. These were now our governors. Silicon Valley is now governing whether or not we can speak. Is our speech free or not? They'll, they'll decide that. Because we are so beholden to social media, we're so connected and, and so tied into our devices. We are now, as that famous theologian uh, Don Henley once said of the Eagles, we are now just prisoners here of our own device. Washington C and the tech giants. The tech giants of Amazon, Apple, Google, Facebook, Twitter, Microsoft. Some call them the four horsemen of the apocalypse. <laughs> of course, there's six of them, so I'm not sure how that works. I just call them Big Brother. I think that's easier to remember. My friends, those in power always think they can rise above the tired and the poor and the huddled masses. And maybe they can. Maybe they can. Maybe we're now living in a country where the powers that be have finally broken out of the democratic republic that we were once founded. But I'll tell you something else, and I tell you this to encourage and comfort you. They cannot rise above the hand of God. They can't rise above the hand of God. A king named Solomon once said in Proverbs 21, verse 1, the king's heart is channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. God's got this. Don't forget that. Another king, a bit later on, a great king, in fact, the first world dictator by the name of Nebuchadnezzar, he said, he wrote Daniel chapter 4, verse 34, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven. And my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom from generation to generations. Nebuchadnezzar saying this. I love it. He says, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of the heaven and the inhabitants of earth, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? Anyone thought that this last week? Lord, what have you done? Nebuchadnezzar would tell you, sit down and shut up. I think it's fascinating. Nebuchadnezzar might even be in heaven. Because the last words out of his mouth that we have recorded in history, he declares the glory of God. He recognized for all of his one-time power that the absolute and true power belongs to God. Now, you might wonder this morning, so what's going on? What were the Trump years about? I mean, four years and now gone and, and over and, and what? So what? And I was talking with Mike Hoffman about this this last week, having a good conversation about it. And he said something, and man, this, this got burned on my brain. Mike said, it was all worth it if only for Israel. 
and I couldn't agree more. Now, it's funny. I have conversations with people, um, some people very close to me, and every time, in fact, one very close to me who was anti-Trump from day one, hated Donald Trump, and, and it's a good friend of mine. And we would have conversations, and every time we have the conversation, I, I would always bring up, but look at what he did for Israel. And after a while, this friend of mine started saying, what is your deal with Israel? This is America, man. Why are you so interested in Israel? Those of you who listen to Amir Sarfati, and by the way, I would encourage you to because he is spot on. Amir just said this last week, America matters more to the Middle East. He, he implied even more than it does to Americans. America matters more to the Middle East, more to Israel. Did you know that of the 14 presidents of America that have served since the Jewish state was born, 1948. Of the 14 who have served, three are named and stand as Israel's greatest friends. And the list might surprise you. Just three. Number one, President Harry Truman. Harry S. Truman, against intense political pressure, especially from his own State Department and from George Marshall, Secretary of State, Nixon was told over and over, do not sign off on this fledgling Jewish state. Do not signal support from America for the state of Israel. 11 minutes after Ben-Gurion, David Ben-Gurion, declared independence for Israel, 11 minutes later, Harry Truman signed a note declaring recognizing the Jewish state. It was profound. And it was the kind of support that Israel needed even to survive in the world's, on the world stage. Harry Truman was a friend of Israel. That happened on May 14, 1948. The second great friend of Israel, President Richard Nixon. How, how, why? Because in 1973, when Israel was caught completely off guard by a massive Arab invasion on Yom Kippur, called the Yom Kippur War. It was Richard Nixon who mobilized support and weaponry to Israel, literally when it arrived, turned the tide of the war and saved the Jewish state. Thirdly, President Donald Trump, who, based on what he did, based on his policies, is the best friend Israel has ever had in an American president. And I'm just telling you, based on what he did, he has done more for Israel than any U.S. president in the history of the Jewish state. Now, some would hear that list, Harry Truman, President Richard Nixon, President Donald Trump, and they could say, greatest friends? Ah, these guys, weren't they all just politically motivated? Sure, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter if what they did was to do something for themselves, the king's heart is channels of water in the hand of the Lord. I don't really care what their personal motives are. I let God deal with the motives. I'm looking at what did they do? What are we doing? After decades of failed U.S. promises, President Trump moved the U.S. Embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. My friends, that was huge. That was earth-shaking. And when he did that, all over the world, people are saying, the Middle East is just going to erupt into flames. You know what happened instead? Peace. Peace. 
Trump recognized Jewish sovereignty over the Golan Heights, something no other president has ever done. The Golan Heights is in northern Israel. That is the, it's incredibly significant, important, strategic uh, land between Syria and Israel in particular. Without, without it, Israel would be nearly indefensible. Highly significant, and President Trump said, that belongs to Israel. Recognized it, first president to do that. He also recognized and supported Jewish settlements in Judea and Samaria. And the left would say, well, that's not okay. Taking land that belongs to the Palestinians, who, by the way, while they are, it's a name for a people group today, are not an historical people group. Mostly Jordanian. They're, they're Arabs that were, well, that, that's a whole different topic I can't get into this morning. But... The Jewish settlements in Samaria and in Judea are Jewish settlements, listen, listen, on land that God said, I'm giving to Israel. And Trump acknowledged that. He developed the Trump peace plan calling on Israel to do two things. Note this, number one, to recognize a Palestinian state. And secondly, to put a four-year freeze on any new settlements. So he recognized the settlements that were there, but he said, listen, Israel, you need to, you need to put a hold on starting new you know, villages in Judea and Samaria, on what you know, the media likes to call the West Bank. Put a hold on that for now. And those were the two requirements of the Trump peace plan for Israel. However, it called on the Palestinians, check this out, to do, number one, recognize Israel as a Jewish state something they would never do. Secondly, to give up their demand for a Palestinian capital in Jerusalem's old city. Again, something they would never do. It called on the Palestinians to demilitarize Gaza, something they would not do, to disarm Hamas, good luck with that, to give up what they call the right of return. You know what the right of return is? That's going all the way back to the, uh, the Six-Day War when all of the Arabs were told, leave your homes, get out of the way for now. We're going to go ahead and wipe out Israel and you can come back. Actually, it goes back to the War of Independence, 1948. Just move out and we'll take care of this, these Jews and then you can move back and you can take all their homes. Well, Israel won its independence. Israel increased its borders in 1967 in the Six-Day War. And after all of that, I said we'd be geopolitical, so stay with me. After all of that, there were several displaced Hundreds of thousands of displaced Arabs, just as there were, by the way, hundreds of thousands of displaced Jews. You know where the hundreds of thousands of displaced Jews went? I think the number is roughly 750,000 displaced Jews who were living outside and in Arab countries. You know where they went? Israel. The fledgling nation with nothing by way of infrastructure and, and help just said, come on, come on in. And they all were given a home in Israel. The displaced Arabs, about 450,000, were not received into the Arab countries. They were left as a tool of propaganda. And so ever since then, they have demanded the right of return, which would mean the right to flood back into Israel and retake all that land without even firing a shot. And it's a ridiculous request. And so the Trump peace plan said, give up the right of return and halt all payments to families of terrorists, which the Palestinian Authority still does. If, if someone loses their life, if a terrorist goes and blows himself up and takes out several Jews with him, the Palestinian Authority immediately dispatches funds to that terrorist family. The Trump peace plan said stop that. 
Now, you might hear that list of things and say, as I've already said, they never go for it. They would never do that. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. What the Trump peace plan basically left them with was no division of Israel. Do not divide up the land of Israel. President Trump has been a great friend to Israel. Now, some have wondered if this Trump peace deal that's been going on the last four years, while he's been under fire for four years, he's been working on peace in the Middle East. And while this has been going on, some have wondered, is this the start of a covenant? Is this perhaps the, the groundwork of a seven-year covenant of peace? Daniel chapter 9, verse 27 which says he, speaking of Antichrist, will make a firm covenant with the many for one week, but in the middle of the week will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering, and on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even a complete destruction, one that is decreed and poured out on the one who makes desolate, on the Antichrist. This prophecy, very interesting, says that he will make a firm covenant with Israel for one seven, one Shabuah. That's a seven-year period of time. That's the tribulation. That's part of how we know the tribulation is seven years long. And it begins with this Antichrist signing a covenant with Israel, a seven-year peace treaty that halfway through he will violate. Interesting that it says he will make a firm covenant, and some have pointed out that the word firm in Hebrew is gabar, which means a strong, prevailing, confirmed covenant. And because of the definition of the word firm, there are some who have suggested that maybe it implies a covenant or a treaty already in place, but finally achieved, firmed up, if you will, by Antichrist. Could the Trump peace plan be the beginnings of the Antichrist covenant? <laughs> I'm not saying so this morning, by the way. If you're jotting that down, Pastor Rick said that, no, I'm not saying that. I'm no prophet. What I'm saying is that as with the mark of the beast, Antichrist will use any and everything at his disposal to rise to power. So if there's a covenant already in place, even if it's a good one, he'll use it. Sure, he'll use it. Why not? As he will use the tech that we have in the world today, he'll use anything he can to, to take power. And I, I side note on this just to say that Satan can't create, he can just counterfeit. All Satan can do is take what's already there and twist it and lie about it. That's what the devil does. So Donald Trump comes along and he, and he presents this peace plan. Following moving the embassy to Jerusalem that everybody again said would erupt in flames in the Middle East and war would break out and it has not, in fact, just the opposite. One more thing I need to just say, side note. Understand this, that America is not the purveyor of peace in the world. Not as we have been in, in times past. We will not ultimately bring peace to the Middle East. In fact, there will be no peace on earth until the Prince of Peace comes. And then there will be peace. And then Jesus will bring it in a way that it cannot come until then. But again, back to the Trump peace plan. So what about that peace plan? And how's it working out? Moved the embassy to Jerusalem. You know what happened? Other nations began to follow. 
began to move their embassies to Jerusalem. Oh, well, America recognizes Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, which was the right move. Other nations are saying, yeah, well, okay, let's do that. And so suddenly embassies are popping up from around the world in Jerusalem. That's awesome. And then as a result of this, Arab nations began signing on, lining up to sign what's called the Abraham Accords. I think the name's perfect. The Abraham Accords. Along with Egypt and Jordan, who already had normalized relations with Israel, the United Arab Emirates signed on, Bahrain signed on, Morocco signed on, and Sudan has signed on for peace, normalized relations with Israel. It is un I never would have thought we'd see this. It's unheard of. And get this. In addition to the ones I just named, there are two more that are ready to make a deal with Israel. Saudi Arabia, and I can't believe I'm even saying this, Lebanon. This is unheard of. This is unprecedented that even these Arab nations are, are signaling interest and now suddenly all the threat to Israel from the surrounding Arab nations, it is melting away. Incredible. And by the way, the Abraham Accords are rolling on with or without America. We were just brokers in the deal. We were not the signers. The signers are Israel and the United Arab Emirates, or Israel and Bahrain, Israel and Morocco, Israel and Sudan. They're the ones signing. Once signed, that's, it's a done deal. These Arab countries, why are they signing on? Because they're facing their own existential threat from a country we used to call Persia from Iran rising up in the Middle East. Iran soon to be a military nuclear power in the Middle East, especially if the new Biden administration has anything to say about it, because they are ready to go right back in to the Iran deal that President Trump pulled out of because it is one of the worst deals ever signed in the history of America. Basically, it was a deal to say, hey, we'll give you scads of cash and you just build a nuclear weapon. That's, that's the essence of, of that deal. And who would have thought that suddenly all of these Arab nations would go, Iran or Israel, we'll sign on with Israel. Who would have thought that? The Lord thought that. The Lord knew that would happen. In fact, the Lord prophesied that would take place. That's in Scripture. This is an unprecedented time right now for the modern Jewish state. Israel is stronger and more secure than it has been in its almost 73-year history, 73 years this May. Stronger than it's ever been, more at peace than it's ever been. You know who else is stronger is Persia, Iran. But prophecy buffs, listen to me, the stage is nearly set. As spoken by the prophet Ezekiel, for Israel to be at complete peace with all of its Arab neighbors. And, and it's fascinating to be in a, alive at a time to see this happen because once that takes place, once Israel is at complete peace and strength with all the surrounding nations, all Arab nations, then a massive five-nation invasion will take place led by Russia, Turkey, Persia, Iran, along with Libya and Ethiopia, and Ethiopia in the scriptures may be modern-day Sudan, so Sudan would break out of their covenant with Israel. Ezekiel 38, verse 11, listen, tells us, they will say, 
I will go up against the land of unwalled villages. I will go against those who are at rest that live securely, all of them living without walls, having no bars or gates. To capture spoil, to seize plunder, to turn your hand against the waste places which are now inhabited and against the people who are gathered from the nations who have acquired cattle and goods who live at the center of the world. The Bible calls Jerusalem and Israel the center of the world. And by the way, if you were to get on a tour bus and make your way all around Israel today to go from town to town, city to city, you know what you would not see? You would not see walls around the cities. What about the security fence? There's a wall there. But most of the security fence is about that high, and it's just barbed wire. But besides that, think about this, unwalled cities. There are no walls around the cities. When Israel was first founded as a nation, every Jewish settlement was walled for protection. Not anymore. Don't need them. It's a land of unwalled villages. It's a land of peace. Israel today, read the rest of Ezekiel 38 on your own or listen to Jake's teaching. He's teaching the, the students on Ezekiel 38 and 39 the last couple of Tuesdays. So go check that out. What, what youth pastor teaches teenagers prophecy? This guy. Praise the Lord. My, my friends, this invasion that will take place called the Gog-Magog invasion, I'll tell you this much, is an absolute disaster for the opponents of Israel. They're gonna fall on the mountains of Israel supernaturally as God intervenes. Some say, well, will we see that happen? I doubt it. I doubt it. We might. It's possible. Be cool. But I, I, I doubt we'll be here. I'm just saying that things are lining up. The Trump peace plan has, has done something that has not happened in our lifetime and the move of the embassy to Jerusalem, all of this has, has created a, a, a scenario where the Jewish state of Israel is strong and is peaceful and its Arab neighbors are turning to Israel for support and strength and protection and help against Iran. It's amazing to watch. Now back to President Trump. Some would say, well, okay, if, if Trump was so pro-Israel, why'd he lose the election? Why didn't God keep him in and, and, and protect him? And, and didn't God promise Abram, Genesis 12, verse 3, I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you, I will curse. And if Trump blessed Israel, shouldn't he be blessed? Don't worry about Trump. God's got his eyes on Donald Trump. I'd be far more concerned for America, which is noticeably absent from the biblical scenarios of the last days. You know, the closest that we can find that could possibly signal America is a mention of ships from the West, incredibly vague, or the wings of the great eagle. Some have tried to say the wings of the great eagle in Revelation 12 refers to America. I'm not really convinced because the great eagle, I think, tends to refer back to God himself. But, but that's it. That's as close as you can get to even seeing America on the pages of last day's prophecy. It is not there. I think America has to be absent for Ezekiel 38 and 39 to take place. For that kind of bold invasion of Israel, you need to have America as pretty much a non-player. 
Just my thought. Not prophecy, just my thought on that. Maybe you saw this too. On Inauguration Day, one of its first social media moves by our State Department changed the Twitter description. Did you read about this? Changed the Twitter description for the U.S. ambassador to Israel to include the West Bank and Gaza. So suddenly the U.S. ambassador to Israel is now the U.S. ambassador to Israel, the West Bank, and Gaza, which signals a shift back to Obama-era policies. It was up for two hours and then immediately taken down. And now it reads, if you look at the Twitter feed for the State Department, it reads the U.S. ambassador to Israel. But that tells us something. There's a hint, there's a signal right there of where the Biden administration is going to go, and it is going to move away from pro-Israel policies. I'm just telling you what we're seeing. But here's the good news. Many of those policies are now irreversible. Things that Donald Trump has done, set in place. Biden's uh, choice for Secretary of State is a man named Antony Blinken. He's grandson of Jewish Holocaust survivors, so a Jew himself. And he's going to be the new Secretary of State. In his confirmation hearings this last week, he stated clearly, he promised as he was questioned, I think by Ted Cruz, that he will not move the U.S. Embassy out of Jerusalem. It's there to stay. And these policies, again, the Abraham Accords, these peace deals, that ball is rolling. That's going forward. That is between Israel and its neighbors and their recognition that they need strength to stand and to remain and to exist against Iran. And so all of that, you know, that's actually good for Biden. That, that, and we, don't, we want it to be, right? We want things to go well for Biden in terms of them going well for America. Not for Biden's policies. There's so many things I could say about this. I'm really holding back. You might not think so, but I really am <laughs> right now. Pray for our president. Please pray for our president. Don't stop praying for our president. I didn't vote for him. I'm not going to pray. You need to pray for him. People of Israel, people of Judah, they had to pray for Manasseh, who was the most evil king they ever had. But I think it's interesting on inauguration morning. Okay, this is me not holding back, Deb. On inauguration morning, the first thing Joe Biden did was go to church. And as a practicing Catholic, he's been called the most religious president that we've seen in the modern era. <laughs> Let me just tell you something. Anyone who approves of a hundred, uh, of, of a million abortions just this last year is not a godly man. Amen. That, that's something, and, and I, I even thought about this. Should we do a whole prophecy update on the whole abortion issue? I mean, yeah. folks, how, how, <laughs> how can you Say, I believe in God and I believe he's the creator of life and approve such barbarics. Yeah. And, and, and right now, that's where our president is. That's what he supports. He already, day one, in, in the Oval Office, one of the executive actions that he took was to restore taxpayer-funded abortions in foreign countries. So pray for him. God can get a hold of anyone. I mentioned evil Manasseh before. Do you realize that at the end of his life, as wicked and evil, probably the worst king Israel ever saw, that he turned around and repented and became a man of God? It can happen. So you pray for our current president. 
But you listen, Zechariah chapter 12, verse 2, back to Israel, says, Behold, I am going to make Jerusalem a cup that causes reeling to all the peoples around. And when the siege is against Jerusalem, it will also be against Judah. That is, there's a siege coming, my friends. It will come about in that day that I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples, and all who lift it will be severely injured. And all the nations of the earth will be gathered against it. All the nations would include this one. Joel chapter 3 verse 2. God says, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And there I will enter into judgment with them on behalf of my people and my inheritance Israel. Whom they have scattered among the nations and they have divided up my land. And that's a severe judgment. You do not want to be in the business of dividing the land of Israel. It's God's land who he determined for his people. By the way, you're seeing, and this is another side note because I'm just, my mind is just spinning. Last night, the, uh, the protest in Bellingham, Washington, of all places, was against ICE and people shouting, no borders, no borders, no borders. Do you know who established borders? God did. Acts 17, Paul said very clearly, he said he is the one who has established boundaries for all the people. Borders are not a bad thing to know where one country begins and another one ends and some sense of law and order. But those who are anti-ICE, well, let's just call them those who are anti-FA, <laughs> Antifa, just tear it down. Anarchy. No borders, no walls, no security whatsoever. And that's, that's their attitude. Well, God is the one who says, they divided up my land. God establishes borders. Now, geopolitical stuff, and there's so much going on, and I even thought this morning, do I really need to spend time on it? I already have. But what about the godly perspective? Because back to the question that, that my friend has asked me several times, why are you so concerned about Israel? It's a postage stamp in the Middle East. It's the size of New Jersey. An entire country the size of one of our smaller states. Why do you care? Why do evangelicals? And often the question is asked with a little bit of snark. Why do evangelicals care so much for Israel and the Jews? And the assumption is you just want to see them burn. You just want to see them go into tribulation. You're just pro-Israel so your little rapture thing can happen. And that is completely untrue. And maybe you wonder that. Maybe this morning you're going, I hear you talking about Israel. So what? Why, why does that matter? And you might roll your eyes. And my friends, right now, an alarming number of evangelical Christians, not mainline Christians, the, the denominational Christianity turned against Israel a long time ago, years ago. But now evangelical Christians are becoming increasingly anti-Semitic politically and socially and spiritually in their geopolitical views. And with that, even that, some would say, well, why does, why does Israel matter? Why is that such a big deal? Let people think what they want. Don't bring politics into the church. Too late. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6, which reads, you, Israel, are a holy people to the Lord your God. Wednesday night, we talked about the holy things of God and rightly handling the holy things of God. Guess what one of those holy things is? Israel. 
The Lord your God has chosen you, Israel, to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you because you are more in number than any of the peoples, for you are the fewest of all peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, chosen, loved, why does it matter? Because, my friends, if you start hating what God loves, you will find yourself loving what God hates. If you start hating what God loves, you will find yourself loving what God hates. And who has God said over and over and over that he loves? Malachi chapter 1, verse 2, I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? How have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob. I love you, the Lord says. So let's move from a geopolitical to a godly perspective. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew 24. Matthew chapter 24. Now we can start our Bible study for the morning. You ought to come second service, because second service, I don't have a service that's following it. <laughs> Matthew 24, verse 32. Now learn the parable from the fig tree. You Bible students know exactly where we're going with this, but stay with me on it. Listen, at least be refreshed in this. Learn the parable of the fig tree. Jesus is on the steps of the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. I love it because when we go to Israel, we always pause and we do Matthew 24 on the southern steps. So cool. So cool to recognize Jesus was right there as he was speaking these words. And so He's there on the steps with the apostles. And they ask him, they say, look at, look at the structure. Look, it's beautiful. Isn't this glorious? Isn't this amazing? In other words, Lord, isn't our faith strong? And he says, tell you the truth, not one stone is going to be left standing on another. And I've told you before, you can see those stones piled up on the southwest corner of the Temple Mount today, having been unearthed by excavations, massive stones broken one upon the other, smashing into the first century street of Herod. You know, they're not going to remain, Jesus says. And he begins to talk to them and, and, and share with them. And then he gives, as we've talked about, a chronological run-through of the last days beginning with the fall of Jerusalem and running all the way through the birth pangs and everything else to the glorious return of Jesus. That's Matthew chapter 30, uh, 24, verses 1 all the way through 31. Now, Jesus turns all attention to anyone who will listen to being on the alert, to being ready, to having eyes wide open. And in this, he says, as he turns the page from chronology to alertness, he says, learn the parable of the fig tree. This is your big clue. This is when alertness is going to be more important than any other time in church history. Learn the parable of the fig tree. And he chooses a symbol that is so very Jewish. That a Jewish person reading would go, I know what the fig tree, that's Israel. Well, how do you know that? 
Hosea chapter 9, verse 10. I found Israel like grapes in the wilderness. I saw your forefathers as the earliest fruit on the fig tree in its first season. Joel chapter 1, verse 6. For a nation has invaded my land, mighty and without number. Its teeth are the teeth of a lion, and it has the fangs of a lioness. It has made my vine a waste, and my fig tree splinters. My fig tree. The nation he's talking about was Assyria that had invaded and, and would invade, as Joel prophesied, northern Israel and decimated. My fig tree is in splinters. What was God's fig tree? Israel. Israel is the fig tree. Learn the parable of the fig tree. And by the way, something had happened earlier that week, and I'll just read it to you. A, a very figgy event had taken place. <laughs> something that Peter just couldn't figure out. It's over in Mark chapter 11, verse 11, and it seemingly says a weird little thing. Jesus entered Jerusalem, came into the temple, and after looking around at everything, he left for Bethany with the twelve since it was already late. On the next day, when they left Bethany, he became hungry. He's walking across. So, so you go up over the Mount of Olives and down into Bethany on the other side. Well, they left Bethany. They come over the Mount of Olives. They're coming down, and Jesus is going, time for breakfast. I want a little something to eat. So becoming hungry, seeing at a distance, Mark eleven thirteen, a fig tree in leaf. He went to see if perhaps he would find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. Although I can tell you that early figs come out in the springtime. The, the, the rich, chewy, tasty, sweet, dessert-like figs are summertime fruit. But they begin as early figs, and you can eat that. It's not very tasty, but it is sustenance. And it does fill the stomach, and it does give you some amount of protein. So and they're little hard, kind of greenish little things. And so Jesus, no doubt, because we know it was springtime at the time, he goes to pull one of those early figs. No figs. Not a single fig on the tree. And he does, I think, the weirdest thing Jesus ever did in his entire ministry. He said to it, verse 14, to the fig tree. He's now talking to a plant. May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples were listening. Be careful. People are always listening. Jesus curses a poor little bush. And Jesus curses it. And you think, wow, Jesus is hungry. Somebody get Jesus a bagel. He needs some food. He's now cursing a plant. All the disciples are watching this. Listen. When evening came, verse 19 they would go out of the city as they were passing by in the morning. So they go back out. Next day, they're coming back in. They come right by the same little fig tree. And as they were passing by, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. Now, don't let that pass by without recognizing that's, that's a powerful moment. Jesus cursed it yesterday, and today it is shriveled and dead. It's gone. And Peter said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered saying, have faith in God. In other words, you think that's a big deal? Have faith in God, he says. Man, you don't need to be Isaac Newton to understand the fig. The fig Newton? You're welcome. Yeah. The fig tree is Israel. Jesus points it out. When Jesus cursed the fig tree, he was leveling a curse. He was saying, this is what's going to happen to Israel. 
Israel became cursed. Why? Because Israel denied its own Messiah, was historically cursed. The land was cursed. All the way until the late 1800s, the land was cursed, decimated. It was nothing like it is today. Today, it's an amazing, remarkable, fruitful land. But as recently as the mid-1800s, it was a wasteland, completely desolate. Read Mark Twain's Innocence Lost. Or, or, or Innocence, ah, that's not it. Innocence, is that it? Innocence? It's a Mark Twain. Look for Mark Twain with Innocence in the title. You'll get it. But he talked about being in Israel and not seeing a person for miles upon miles upon miles and nothing but desert waste. And a lot of people think, why would I want to go on an Israel tour? It's just desert waste. They still think that. It's not anymore. It's stunning. It is fruitful again. Oh, I'm getting ahead of myself. What am I doing? Oy vey. The fig tree is Israel. Israel's the fig tree. The fig tree was cursed. It shriveled. It, it died. It became a wasteland. But it is fruitful. It is fruitful again. Right now, he says, learn the parable from the fig tree when its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves. You know that summer is near. You know these things are about to happen. There's your sign. Here's your sign. <laughs> Jesus says, the fig tree. By the way, I got to throw this in there. You want to add one more thing to the Older Testament references to the rapture of the church? I have one more for you. We went through dozens of them on, on Sunday. Listen to this one. Song of Songs, chapter 2, verse 11, where we, we hear the bride is saying what the groom is saying to her. So the bride is just quoting the words of the groom, bride and groom. You know who we're talking about? When we say bride and groom, the bride is the church and the groom is Jesus. Listen to it in that context. She says, my beloved responded and said to me, so here comes the voice of the groom, arise, my darling, my beautiful one, come along. For behold, the winter is past. The rain is over and gone. All Washingtonians say, amen. <laughs> and the flowers have appeared in the land. The time has arrived for pruning. The voice of the turtle dove, the spirit, Voice of the dove has been heard in our land. The fig tree has ripened its figs. And the vines in blossom have given forth fragrance. And it's at that time when the fig tree becomes leafy and tender and begins to put forth its blossoms and is fragrant again. It's at that time when he says, the bridegroom, Song of Songs, chapter 2, verse 13, Arise, my darling, my beautiful one, and come along. I think it's another reference to the rapture of the church happening at the time when we see the fig tree as it blooms, as it blossoms. Learn the parable of the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So you too, when you see all these things, recognize he is near. He's right at the door. By the way, in our uh, Bridge to Israel tours. We often, uh, early in the tour, we'll end up at Caesarea Philippi. Beautiful green area up in the north. It's also called Banyas. And when we go there, everybody piles out of the bus and we start walking up through running water and, and uh, you know, the, the headwaters of the Jordan. And we come up to a place and as we walk the paths, there are fig trees everywhere. And people get real excited about this because you can pick these early figs. 
And normally we go in the springtime, you can pick these early figs, which tell you summertime is near. I don't know how many of your backpacks at home have these little figs still sitting in them. <laughs> Do something with those. But it's just a reminder, summer's near, summer's near. The fig tree, Israel, began to blossom May 14th, 1948. The nation emerged. Learn the parable of the fig tree, Jesus says. Hint, hint, wink, wink, check it out. And then in verse 34, he says, truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Okay, I'm already realizing I'm going to have to do this in two parts. So next week we'll finish up. But, but stay with me just a few more minutes here. All what things are going to take place? He says, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. All these things. What things? What did he just describe to them? Birth pangs. Tribulation, the great tribulation, the abomination of desolation, Armageddon, the second coming of Jesus Christ. All of these things, all of these things, this generation will not pass away until all of these things have taken place. When Jesus says, this generation will not pass away, he follows it by saying, heaven and earth, verse 35, will pass away, but my words will not pass away. In other words, you have my word on it. On what? That the, this generation will not pass away. What generation? The generation of the fig tree. Will not pass away until Jesus Christ comes again. His promise, his word. What does he mean, this generation? And I'll give you two quick possibilities. Number one, the generation that sees the tender, leafy fig tree. The generation alive at the time, 1948. We still have plenty of people on earth who were born prior to 1948. Who are here, this generation. By the way, the Bible gives us a, a, an idea of what a generation is. It's 40 to 100 years. 40 years would have been 1988. Well, all these things didn't take place, so it can't be 40 years that he's talking about. But in Genesis 15, God compares four generations to 400 years. So a generation is 100 years. This generation will not pass away until all these things take place. 1948, the fig tree begins to put forth its leaves. At 100 years, 2048. Stay with me. 2048, but, but all these things have to take place. So from 2048, you got to subtract at least seven years for the tribulation. So now we're looking at 2041. I'm kind of excited about this. So Rick, you're saying that we could be raptured in 2041? I didn't say that. I did not say that. I think he's coming way sooner than 2041. I hope before I'm done here. All these things will take place. But even if he doesn't call the church home until 2041, my friends, you know what that tells us? That tells us we got 20 years on this earth. Planet Earth has maximum 20 years. Well, what if 2041 comes along and, and it goes by and you're wrong and the church isn't raptured? False prophet! No, no, no. I'm not saying that's a definite. I'm just saying if, if generation here speaks of that span of time 100 years, then that's absolutely what will take place before 2048. All these things have to take place. But 
There's another possible definition or translation for generation. And that translation, the word is hegenea, this generation. And a generation is an age, 100 years, like I said, or, or a family, a race, a people group. This genea, who? The genea of the fig tree, the generation of Israel. In other words, Israel will remain till Jesus comes. Malachi chapter 3, verse 6, I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. Israel will remain. Israel must remain. And you might say, well, so is it this age or is it this people? And I think it's both. I think it's both. I think I will finish this up because there are only a couple more things I got to do here. Turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11. And we'll only go about 45 or 50 more minutes. <laughs> Isaiah chapter 11. You know, I don't know if your laughter is, go for it, Rick, or it's just kind of like, oh, no. <laughs> Isaiah chapter 11. Turn in your Bibles there. We'll do this quickly. I just want you to see a couple of things, and then we're, and then we're done. Isaiah 11, while you're turning there, begins with a description of Messiah literally of his spirit, which is the Holy Spirit. And, and, and it describes Messiah's spirit, his nature, his character, his righteousness. And then in verse, that's verses one through five, and then it shifts to his kingdom, talking about Messiah's kingdom in verses six through nine of Isaiah 11. And finally, we're gonna pick it up in verse 10. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 10, listen. Then in that day, the nations will resort to the root of Jesse, who will stand as a signal for the peoples and his resting place will be glorious. The nations of the world will resort to the root of Jesse. Who's the root of Jesse? Well, if you go back to verse one, we already know. A shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse and a branch from his roots will bear fruit and the spirit of the Lord will rest on him and that's Jesus Christ. The root of Jesse. The nations of the world will resort to Jesus. I love the word resort in the Hebrew. It's yidrosu. And yidrosu literally means to seek after with great care. There, get this. There's coming a day soon when the entire world will seek after Jesus. This is not that day. But that day's coming. And these are the nations that are left standing after the tribulation, seeking for Jesus at the head of the kingdom. He will stand as a signal, as a signal the world will gather to him. Nations, by the way, nations who cared for Israel, but that's another teaching for another time. Matthew 25 talks about that. The nations who cared for, who loved Israel, who loved God's people during the tribulation will survive. Nations, people who believe in Jesus and now they seek after Jesus. Verse 11, then it will happen on that day that the Lord will again recover the second time with his hand the remnant of his people who will remain from Assyria, Egypt, Pathros, Cush, Elam, Shinar, Hamat, from the islands of the sea, which means the coastlands, and normally that just means out west. In other words, from all over the world, he is going to recover the second time. On that day, that is the day that all the nations resort to Jesus, he's gonna recover his people, all Israel. But note, get this, he says a second time, and this is where I've gotten the teaching, I think, wrong in the past. I'm gonna recover a second time my people. When was the first time? In the past, I've said the first time was the return from Babylon. 
But you know what? That can't be it because all his people weren't recovered then. It was a small percentage of people who were recovered at that time. There has only been ever one massive Yahweh-orchestrated all-Israel recovery, only one in all of history, and the Jews still celebrate it every Passover. It is the time of the Israelite return to the land from Egypt 3,500 years ago, that, that massive recovery of his people back into the land that was promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and he will lift up a standard, verse 12, for the nations and assemble the banished ones of Israel and will gather the dispersed from Judah from the four corners of the earth. Not from Babylon. <laughs> Not just from one location, but from all over the world they will come back in that day. That is the day the nations resort to the root of Jesse. Remember, Jesus says, I am the root and descendant of David. But he says, then the jealousy of Ephraim will depart and those who harass Judah will be cut off, all anti-Semites. Ephraim will not be jealous of Judah and Judah will not harass Ephraim. So the northern tribes, the southern tribes will once again be fully united in Jesus. And they will swoop down on all the slopes of the Philistines on the west. That's Gaza. Together they will plunder the sons of the east. They will possess Edom, Moab. The sons of Ammon will be subject to them. That's Jordan today. And the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the Sea of Egypt, probably, probably the tongue of the Red Sea that comes right up to Elot in southern Israel. And he will wave his hand over the river, that's the Euphrates. Whenever the Old Testament talks about the river, it's the Euphrates River. And with his scorching wind, he will strike it into seven streams and make men walk over it dry shod. Dry shod, well, that means in sandals. So get out your Birkenstocks. Please don't wear socks with them. <laughs> and there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant of his people who will be left just as there was for Israel in the day that they came out of the land of, here it is, Egypt. That was the first great return and there's only been one massive great all Israel return to the land when they came back from Egypt as we've been studying in Torah. He's going to recover a second time. All of his people. How many? Right now in the world, 14.5 million Jews are in the world. 80% of the 14.5 million Jews in the world today are not Jews in relation to faith or even Jewish heritage. They don't even really recognize that. It's a massive number that are what we would call secular Jews. They're Jewish. They know they have a Jewish heritage, but that's about as far as it goes. 14.5 million in the world today, but Zechariah tells us, God says, it will come about in all the land that two parts in it, two-thirds, will be cut off and perish, but a third will be left in it, and I will bring the third part through the fire, refine them as silver is refined, test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name, and I will answer them. They will, I will say, these are my people, and they will say, the Lord is my God. If you do the math right now, one-third of 14.5 million is 4.8 million people saved. One-third of the world's Jews will pass through the fires of tribulation and actually be saved. The rest will be lost, but... This is what I'm convinced that Paul means when he says in Romans eleven twenty six, and so all Israel will be saved. All Israel? How can all Israel be saved if two-thirds are lost? All Israel speaks of those Jewish people who are alive at the end of the tribulation. All Israel 
and every last one of them will come to faith in Jesus Christ and will be saved by him. Why does this all matter? Why is this important to me? Number one, because as we said, Israel matters to God. Israel matters to me because Israel matters to God. Secondly, because as Malachi chapter 3 verse 6 told us again, God does not change. Israel's our insurance policy. Do you realize that? That Israel is our insurance policy of God's faithfulness. If he's not faithful to Israel, how do you know he'll be faithful to you? If he doesn't keep his promises to them, why should he keep his promises to you? They are our insurance policy that we have a God who does not change, who keeps his bright, shining word of the truth and will all the way to the end. I love Israel because Israel matters to God, because God does not change. And finally, note this, I love Israel because at the last, Israel may save someone else that I love. What do you mean? Ask yourselves, who do you know? Who do you love that does not know Jesus right now? Who right now in your family, among your friends, remains unsaved? Israel may be the tool by which that person, those people, find salvation even in the tribulation. See, Revelation 7 tells us, and I won't read it right now, you can read it on your own, but it describes 144,000 Jewish people, specifically called out from each one of 12 tribes, and the tribes are named so that we can have no, make no mistake about it. These are Jews. 144,000, roughly double the number of missionaries in the world right now, 144,000 that will be sent out into all the earth proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. Guess what? Some of your friends and relatives may hear them and receive Jesus and be saved. That to me is a great reason to love Israel right now. Malachi chapter three, we'll finish verse six, which again says, for I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. Down in verse 16, then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord gave attention and heard, and a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the name of the Lord, who esteem his name, they will be mine, says the Lord of hosts. On the day that I prepare my own possession, I will spare them as a man spares his own son, who serves him. My friends, are you saved? Are you going to be spared? God does not change, but he can change you, and he can change me. If you are right now a follower of Jesus Christ, but you are uncertain about your royal priesthood, how do I function in that? What do I do? God can change you. He's the one who will make you one of his royal priests. You trust in him. If you don't believe in Jesus at all, let God change you. One of the things that's interesting to me that's happening with all the spreading of lies and everything else going on in the world right now is that people are flocking to truth. Where can you find it? Newsmax? You know, Epic Times? I mean, where are you going to find the truth? People are scrambling. Where do I go? What can I use? Who am I listening to? The word of God is truth. And God has set his stamp on Israel God loves Israel, and God does not change.
But as I said again, he can change you. Let's pray together. Father, I just ask that this morning, Lord, you would take all the stuff that's been happening. As Les likes to say, that's swirling around us right now, all this crazy hurricane stuff, all the politics, all the social ills, Father, all the pain that we see in the world, all the rebellion, the lawlessness. Lord, these things, as your people, as Christians, we can see these things and we can be very unnerved. We can be anxious. We can be worried about them. Help us to trust that you are the king of kings. Help us to recognize, Lord, that we have lost nothing. In actuality, Father, we have gained everything in Jesus Christ. Help us, Lord, not to love this world. For those who love the world, the love of the Father is not in them. Lord, help us to love you first and foremost. Help us to love each other Lord Jesus, as you first loved us, and may we, Father, learn to love your people Israel and to stand for and to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. For, Lord, we recognize you are going to bring all these things together. You're going to make it all happen. We trust you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.